Hey, it's Sunday, October 11th. Uh, so glad that you're joining us. The teaching text for today is Ephesians 2. I'm uh, going to read verses 11 through 18. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, you Gentiles, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far away, talking about the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Lord, I just ask that as we reflect on your word, that you'd make it alive for us, and by the Spirit, you would illuminate it for us so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you want to say to the church. Amen. Uh, if you're not aware, uh, we're doing a 10-week study through Paul's letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. And today is part four. So if you missed uh, any of the first three sermons, the first two by me, the third one by my friend John Enzer, you can go and catch up. Uh, where we are in the passage right now is kind of hopping into a mid the middle of a conversation in chapter two that we started uh, last week. Now, to understand the passage that we've just read, we have to remember our Ephesian context, the, the context of the church in Ephesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus on the, is on the western side of modern-day Turkey. It was a Roman port city, a really uh, influential city. The church in Ephesus is a minority movement in this bustling metropolis. The city on the whole, I mean, is pagan, is idolatrous. They house the temple to the goddess Artemis, uh, and they're xenophobic. They're very proud to be Roman and, and tend to be anti-other uh, people. And while God has done some really mighty displays of power in the city, there's also been intense opposition and even hostility and persecution against the church. And in this city, uh, the church is doing something that's almost completely uh, without precedent. The, the church is getting together in this city as an ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically diverse band of people. And in no other associations in the ancient Roman world do we see slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, men and women coming together as equals. And yet it's beginning to happen in these little microcosms of the kingdom as churches are planted in the ancient Roman Empire. And it could have easily been thought to be impossible to do what the church was doing. Really difficult to be this diverse coalition keeping all things together. Maybe impossible then, but even now, something that's quite difficult to do all these years later. Uh, it tends to be true that, that organizations or family systems or churches grow homogeneously. What that means is like 
tends to attract like. So the first 10, the first 50 people in at Cornerstone were middle-class white folks. And as our church has grown over the last couple of years, we've grown in generational diversity, but we've not grown really in very much ethnic diversity because organizations, family systems tend to grow homogeneously. Now, my prayer is that in the years to come that that is not the case, that in increasing measure, our church reflects the diversity of the city of Tulsa and even more so the diversity of of the kingdom of God. But organizations tend to grow homogeneously. As the gospel was putting down roots in Ephesus, among the first believers were both Jews who represented God's covenant family, everything that God had done through the people of Israel beginning with Abraham. But there were also Gentiles who until very recently had been thought to be untouchable, anathema, outside of the community of faith, outsiders. And there had been longstanding animosity between these two groups, between Jews and Jews. And Gentiles, in the Gospels, the the disciples give Jesus grief over a conversation he had with a Samaritan woman because, as they said, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, with with Gentiles, non-Jews. They'd all grown up believing that was just a line you don't cross. In the book of Acts, God has to appear to Peter in a dream and tell him it's okay, not only okay for you to associate with Gentiles, but don't call anything unclean which God has made clean. And as a result of Peter beginning to go to the home of Cornelius and spending time with Gentiles, and as Paul took the gospel to Gentiles, there was significant conversation within the church because of this prejudice and fear and suspicion that Jews, God's historic covenant people, had toward Gentiles. And evidently, within the church in Ephesus, uh, traces of such prejudice or suspicion remained such that Paul needed to address it. It was undermining the peace and the harmony of the church. And so Paul in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is taking this on. In the text, Paul reminds the Gentile believers of, of the significance of their entry into God's family because it wasn't always this way. He says, you were once separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope and without God. And it's reminiscent of what he said in the text last week that on our own we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live, subjected to uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It sounds like what he's already said to us. But then he reminds uh, the Gentile believers and the Jewish audience what constituted their point of entry into the community of faith. He says this in verse 13 if you're following along. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. And then we hear what Paul is doing, like the argument that he's setting up in this text. He's making an appeal to unity and peace within the church on the basis of the cross. And I really want you to get this because it's going to tee up the conversations we have about applying this text to life in our world today. He's making an appeal for how the church behaves together, how they deal with conflict, how they approach reconciliation, how they deal with strained relationships. He's making this appeal to peace and unity on the basis of the cross. Now, certainly there were times in the life of the church in Ephesus where they asked the question, you know, you've got Jew, Gentile, men, women, rich, poor, worshiping together, where they had to ask the question, what can possibly keep this whole thing together? What is holding us together? We hear Paul in verse 14 as he says, Jesus himself, 
He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier. Jesus' purpose, says Paul, was, quote, to create in himself one new humanity and to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I was reading this psychologist, sociologist this week, and he was talking about the significance of various rites of passage in the life of a family. So think about a birth or a wedding, or in this case, I want to focus on funerals and the role that they play in these family systems. And the author noted that there's this strange phenomenon that happens in the weeks leading up to and following a funeral in the life of a family. Uh, all of you know what this is like, that in a family you get in ruts from time to time. There, there are relational patterns that happen that nobody's altogether happy with, but you also don't know how to get unstuck from them. So there's the brother who won't talk to the father, or there's the aunt who plays mediator between the cousins, or there's one member of the family who won't talk to anybody. And it feels like these ruts or these patterns are inescapable. But the author argued that something happens in the time immediately before and after a funeral. Uh, Because when a family member dies, the equilibrium within the family member, within the family system itself, gets disrupted. It shifts. And this shift, this, this disequilibrium for a short period of time, seems to unlock the whole relational system and allow people to make some changes. And so... Imagine that there's a family where the person who died was the go-between. Well, after they died, sometimes hostility between family member A and B, who are not used to dealing with each other, they're used to dealing with the go-between person, that hostility erupts. Or it can happen in the opposite direction, where uh, in the absence of that third party to mediate conflict, family member A and family member B, who were estranged, suddenly find themselves coming near to each other and they're talking out these long-standing issues. Sometimes a death in a family prompts the black sheep to come home and to reconnect. Surrounding a death, surrounding a funeral, there's a shift within the family system enabling significant relational uh, change to happen within the window of this time. The window's not going to last forever, but for a time, the system unlocks itself. We actually see this in the Bible. If you remember the story from the book of Genesis, uh, God called Abram and Sarai and said, I'm going to, through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. I'm going to give you a kid. They're getting really old in age, and God said they're going to have a kid, but they are not pregnant yet. And so Sarai uh, makes a shortcut. She takes her servant Hagar and says, hey, sleep with my husband, and this is how we're going to get an heir of Abraham. Uh, Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael and then later uh, Sarai gets pregnant her name's changed changed to Sarah and they Abraham and Sarah have Isaac as Isaac is born uh, Sarah is just done with Hagar and with her son and so she kicks them to the curb Hagar and Ishmael have to go on the run and the two families the 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 line through Isaac and the line through Ishmael grow estranged. They grow into different nations, but they grow distant from one another until something significant happens. Genesis 25, 7 says, Abraham lived 175 years. Then he breathed his last and died at a good old age 
an old man full of years, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. In the wake of a death, we see it with Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, in the wake of a death, a window of opportunity is unlocked whereby those who are estranged can be brought together. And this is precisely what Paul is arguing, what he's contending for to the church in Ephesus. That on the basis of the death of Christ for the sake of the whole world, like there's an opportunity for reconciliation between warring parties. He's appealing to unity and peace within the church on, on the basis of the cross. This window of opportunity for peace and restoration and reconciliation has been opened because one died for all. And Paul reminds the Ephesians in verse 17 what Jesus did for him. He says, he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who were near, reminding them, I think Isaac and Ishmael, that they are children of the same father. In view of his death for us, let's be reconciled to one another. Now, division within the church Division within the community of faith is, is not a new thing. We see it a ton. Adam versus Eve, uh, uh, Cain versus Abel, Jacob versus Esau. The story goes on and on again. Uh, many of us could tell stories of personal experience of being a part of a church split or a denominational split or a small group even splitting up. It, it, the people of faith often, sadly, break up into these small little splinter cells. Uh, there's a comedian whose name is Emo Phillips who tells the story of having a conversation with this guy and the guy said to him, I used to believe in God. And Emo responded, that's good. Were you a Christian or were you a Jew? And the guy said, Christian. And Emo responded, me too, Protestant or Catholic? And the guy responds, Protestant. And Emo said, me too, what franchise? And if we were all in person, that's the part where you would lightly chuckle. The guy said, Baptist. And Hemo responds, me too, Northern Baptist? Or were you Southern Baptist? And the guy said, Northern Baptist. And Hemo responded, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist? Or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the guy responded, Northern Conservative Baptist. And Hemo responds, me too, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? And the guy said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. And Nemo said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? And the guy responded, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. And Nemo responds, hey, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And the guy responds, well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And Nemo responds, die, heretic. <laughs> We're so divided. The church at times, you know, feels like it's falling apart. Denominations are splitting. To our shame, we're reflective of, of our divided and polarized and fractured world. We see deep and entrenched political divisions in our world. We see racial and socioeconomic divisions. We've seen the, those fights erupt into the streets this year. 
uh, in very, very painful ways as these divisions have been further exposed within our country. In the city of Tulsa, we see the geographical divisions of what, like, depending on where you live, it shapes your life. Our mayor has talked about the life expectancy between North and South Tulsa having a 10-year difference. There are religious divisions. There are generational divisions. Into a splintered and suspicious world, Paul's word to the Ephesians still rings loud and clear. It's a siren call. It's a warning light. It's an invitation to reconsider our tribalistic ways and to come out from behind the battle lines that we've drawn. And Paul makes this point by appealing to the cross. There is no Christianity apart from the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the question becomes, in what way does the cross reshape our approach to division? In in what way does the cross, does the gospel inform how we approach conversations about peace and unity within the church? Well, more than anything, the cross, uh, in the cross, we see how God chooses to treat his enemies. In the person of Jesus Christ and his gentleness and his wisdom and the way that God has shown mercy instead of wrath, poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. In the cross, we see God's policy for dealing with enemies. And at the cross, we remember that we were once among them. And if God so loved and honored us when we were his enemies, how does that color and inform and shape and inspire how we're meant to treat one another? Jesus tells the story in the Gospels of a servant who owed his creditor $10,000. And the creditor calls him to account and demands payback. And the guy pleads, I don't have the money. Please, please, please show me mercy. And the creditor relents. Because he pled for mercy, he, he forgives his debt and he sets him off free. And the man is like given his life back. And he goes back into town and this forgiven man finds somebody who owes him 10 bucks and he calls him to an account saying, it's time to pay me back now. And the man pleads, please show me mercy. I don't have the money. I promise I'll pay you back. But the forgiven man shows no mercy and throws him in prison until he's paid back everything. When the original creditor hears of the merciless behavior of the one who was forgiven, he said, you wicked servant. I canceled your debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant like I had on you? In his his anger, Jesus says, he handed him over to be tortured until he paid back what he owed. You see, it just doesn't work to receive the mercy of God and then to turn and behave mercilessly toward one another. It insults the kindness and the generosity and the grace of God. What are we meant to do instead? We're meant, as Paul was arguing, to let the cross retrain how we approach enemies. To rewire uh, the ways that we think about divisions in the church. To help us reconsider the ways that like, we're, we're being informed by how the world treats hostility and wrong and be reshaped by the gospel. 
We need to learn through the, the lens of the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus how to conceive conflict, how to think about those people with whom we have a strained relationship. And one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, uh, Paul makes this case in Philippians chapter 2. He says, listen, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he's saying, look, if God has made a difference in your life at all, if the love of Jesus for you means anything, then please do what I'm about to tell you to do. Verse 2, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, being of one spirit and of one mind. Man, verse 3 gets so challenging. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he's about to quote a hymn that the church would sing together. These words are a hymn the church would sing. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, look, if Jesus means anything to you at all, then value and respect and prioritize one another. Give the benefit of the doubt. Rid yourself of selfishness. Like platform one another to positions of honor in your minds and your hearts. Treat one another the way that Jesus treated us, the, the, the mindset, the attitude that he had in his incarnation, who though he should be glorified by all of earth, uh, in, he, in, the, in the fullness of time will be, made himself nothing, allowing himself to be misunderstood and mocked and even crucified. If Jesus has done this for each other, for, for us, should we do less for each other? Have the same mind in you that is also in Christ Jesus. I'm sure you've seen uh, these, these videos on YouTube of folks who set up these elaborate contraptions. They'll have a stack of dominoes that fall over and they hit a ball and the ball sets off the mousetrap and the mousetrap causes the balloon to rise and yada, yada, yada. These elaborate systems for doing a really simple task. It's called a Rube Goldberg machine. And if you can picture a Rube Goldberg machine, you, you can imagine in, in the equivalent of human relationships how there can often be these chain reactions of mental anguish. 
where one person is, was hurt by another person and so they act out to another person and the, the harm that that causes them makes them act out to somebody else and we see just ricocheting around the room. We see this chain reaction of mental anguish and this is the, the, the situation that humanity has found ourselves in. I've previously talked about it like a million bouncy balls just ricocheting off the walls. The Rube Goldberg machine of human destruction and sinfulness and brokenness relationships is just going off all around us. How does the way of Jesus and how does this appeal to the cross as the basis for peace and unity liberate us from being a victim of the chain reaction of mental anguish? Well, we recognize that we play a part in a system, that there have been wounds inflicted on us. There has been wrong that's done to us that if we don't deal with it and seek healing from Jesus, we're going to push on that hurt and harm and hostility to other people. But the way of Jesus demonstrating his love and patience with others through the cross, his forbearance with us through the cross enables us to say, I am going to step out of this chain reaction of mental anguish. I'm going to take myself out of this system of returning tit for tat, wound for wound, eye for eye. It's this, this resolution to say, I am no longer willing to be somebody else's enemy. <laughs> they may think I am, but I am unwilling to be your enemy. I refuse to be a cog in the machine of animosity. I refuse to fight in the same way that those who do not know the love of God fight. How do we take ourselves out of this chain reaction of mental anguish? Well, we offer forgiveness instead of bitterness. Kindness over a mean spirit. Mercy over judgment. Humor over seriousness generosity over stinginess, prayer over gossip, peace over hostility, unity over tribalism. When people harms, harm us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, learning to see them through the eyes of the kingdom, we ask God to help us to see them as victims of this chain reaction of human destruction. See them as victims and not just perpetrators set out to ruin our lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, because of the love of God, we can no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view because Christ died for all. And it changes the way that we see and treat each other. Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone uh, takes your, your, your shirt, offer them your cloak too. If they ask you to go one mile, go two. Even more than just not hating folks, the gospel invites us to cherish even those with whom we disagree. To cherish those who've harmed us. To cherish those with whom we think differently politically. To cherish those who live in different parts of the world or different parts of the city. To cherish those of different faiths. And you might be thinking, like, that's just not done. You just don't do that. Which puts us in this marvelous posture as we end the sermon and for those who will listen to the, the sermon this morning on the lawn as we prep for communion, but even for those of you who are watching or listening online as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ. 
how like loving in this way is not something that we are capable of. We don't have the faculties and the capacities to do it on our own, which helps us end this sermon in a position of utter desperation and need, asking God to do in us and be in us what we cannot do and what we cannot be on our own. And in this way, we fulfill the words of Jesus who says, by your love for one another will the world know that you are my disciples. And may it be true among us that we recognize the system of human anguish and destruction and by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, step out, refusing to be a cog in the machine of animosity, refusing to be someone else's enemy, and instead taking up the gentleness and the wisdom of Christ, having the same mindset in us as the, as the one in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, didn't regard it as something to be exploited, but made himself nothing. And as a result of his downward journey, making himself nothing, he was exalted and will be exalted in due time. And likewise, as we join with Jesus in being misunderstood and being spat upon and being the peacemaker, we find ourselves in his company and we can trust that in due time, we will be exalted. In the world, we're given this invitation to be agents of reconciliation, but even more so in the church. I just invite you to consider, as you think about our church family, are there strained relationships, disruptions to peace and unity in the church? And there's an invitation from you, for you by the Spirit, to, to stop fighting the way that everybody else fights. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there and go and be reconciled and then offer your gift at the altar. Are there ways in which you're fighting like those who don't know God in your business deal with extended family, with your neighbor, with, you know, purchasing property? I don't know. How are you being invited on an appeal to the cross of Christ to reconsider how you're fighting and who you're fighting and instead to take up the way of Jesus who made himself nothing? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on us in such a way that we might be people who follow through with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, who, who learn to live this cross-shaped, gospel-shaped kind of life, laying down our lives for our friends and for our enemies. Liberate us from the need to defend ourselves or to have, have the last word in a conversation. Free us from this deep desire to establish justice and revenge for ourselves and help us find our deepest satisfaction empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow in the way of Jesus. Misunderstood, maligned, mocked, and now at the right hand of the Father glorified. We trust that in the fullness of time, you will make all things new and all things right. And even those moments where things don't work out the way that we hope, uh, all things will be made right. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, God bless you. We'll see you around.